you know, some of what we'll talk about tonight is this idea that there's this connection between the promised land, and even the promised land, you see, doesn't fulfill all that God's people had hoped it would fulfill. It still leaves them wanting more. And what you get here, even with the idea of the Sabbath and the idea that the Sabbath is is to be a day of rest, and what's celebrated in that hymn is every Sunday we have an opportunity to enjoy the rest, but also to have our uh, appetite whetted for the rest that is to come. And so, um, did you like that it had the word convocations, holy convocations um, in there? You know, that's sort of a, um, it is interesting, you know, the convocation program at Belmont. The holy convocations used to be a word that was used in the context of religious gatherings, like it's another name for a worship service, um, which I don't know if all the convocations would fit um, under that uh, category or that title anymore. But um, anyway, we're going to look tonight at Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31 is where we're going to look tonight. We are getting near the end of our series on the life of Moses. Very near it, actually. Tonight, we're going to look at Moses' death. And then next week, you may wonder, where are we going to go after Moses' death? Uh, well, we're going to look at the song that he composes right before he dies. We're going to end with that. So um, I'm actually going to do Deuteronomy 31 and make some references to what happens over in chapter 34. Then we're going to come back next week and look at the song that he leaves them with. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but we're actually going to look at it in detail next week. So, the life of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy those nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. (coughs) Excuse me. So Moses went, wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year for canceling debts during the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. The law, he means, is the chapters 1 through 30 of Deuteronomy which is basically Moses' last sermon. Okay? They're supposed to read it every seven years. Um, assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the aliens living in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it 
and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. The Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them, and on that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know that they are disposed I, sorry, I know what they are disposed to do, even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. The Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun. Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to testify against them. For I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. In days to come, disaster will fall upon you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger by what your hands have made. <laughs> That's the way to win friends and influence people, isn't it? Isn't that a strange ending to this book, to this story? Strange ending. I don't know if you've ever been at a church where a pastor preaches his farewell sermon before going off into retirement, but I guarantee you this ranks as one of the strangest farewell sermons ever preached, Right? I mean, doesn't, that, doesn't this strike you as strange? This is a strange ending to the story of Moses' life. Um, uh, there, one, of, one of the books that I was reading in preparation for tonight uh, is a book by Eugene Peterson. He translated The Message, that translation, which I, I find really helpful in a number of ways. Um, and he's, he wrote a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places that's really about um, community, um, big section on community and really how God is at work in his world in different ways. And um, he says that this story, this ending story of the life of Moses is so important for us in our day and age in particular because we tend to be sort of utterly romantic about the spiritual life 
in particular uh, about what it will be like to be with a community of Christians. He's particularly addressing Christians. He thinks that one of the biggest problems we have is that Christians are utterly romantic about what they think Christian communities should feel like and look like. Here's, here's the way he says it. He says, most of us are incorrigible romanticizers, romanticizers of matters spiritual. We are prone to go off of tangents of utopian fantasy, following the line that if God is involved in all of this, and if we're involved rightly, this community, um, then the community that results will be idyllic. In other words, if God is in this thing, and we're in it in the right way, and we have our heart in the right place, then the community that results from this is going to be wonderful and amazing. And he says, we need to go back and read the end of the story of the life of Moses to realize that the Bible gives no such basis for that kind of romantic nonsense about Christian community. And yet I think in a lot of ways, um, it's a story we in particular, people of this younger generation, need to hear because I think in a lot of ways there's fresh enthusiasm in a good, in a good way, fresh enthusiasm and um, fresh zeal that, that if we just really get serious. I mean, we had a big thing in Nashville not too long ago, big thing at the, at the stadium, right, Titan Stadium, that if we can just get together and pray that this generation can be the generation that changes everything. And, and I think when you read the Bible, you, you find there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons to think that Christian community is going to be a lot harder than you might have thought it was going to be. I mean, Moses is a great leader in a lot of respects. I mean, do you know why he doesn't get to go into the promised land? Do you know what he did wrong? Anybody remember? We didn't talk about it. Well, yeah, lost his temper. He struck the rock not once like he was supposed to, but twice. That's it. Okay, so, you know, other than that, he did a really good job, okay? And look what God says to him at the end of his life. As soon as you're dead, these people are going to prostitute themselves to other gods in the land of promise that I'm giving them. Wow. So what do you expect from your Christian community? Now, again, see, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I, I think one of the reasons we like to sing songs about heaven and we need to sing songs about heaven, like Sands of Time, is because in a lot of ways, like you're the generation that in a lot of ways was promised, you know, heaven on earth. We can, we can kind of work it out. We can get there. And, and yet, you know, that's sort of like what your parents were, were sort of thought in a lot of ways. Um, sort of the, the idealism of the 60s, you know, that we can revolt against, you know, the countercultural revelation and we will change everything and we'll bring peace and harmony and People will love each other. It'll be a great thing. And then, you know, and then you guys come along and you find that the, the outlook for the world is a lot more bleak than it's probably ever been, right? In other words, you know, you're saddled with in- incredible debt, incredible problems, all of the solutions that the government tried to engage in in the 60s and 70s and 80s to fix them have made things worse. And who knows what the future holds? So I think in a lot of ways, like, we've gone from thinking that heaven can be found on earth to, like among your generation, in a lot of ways, thinking that heaven is just an illusion and can't be found anywhere. And that the best way, the best way, I think this is what a lot of us think, the best way to sort of get through life is to not, is to not get your hopes up for much of anything. Kill your hope and you won't be disappointed. And, you know, 
in, in a lot of ways, you know, this story kind of fits in with that in a little bit because it's like, yeah, here I knew it. You know, all Christian communities are just a sham and eventually that comes to be seen. Now, I think actually what this story does is it teaches us to be realistic, but it also teaches us where our hope really needs to lie. This is a story that teaches us we need to be realistic and also that we need to put our hope in the right place. So let's, let's dig into this story a little bit. First point I want to make is it seems like things are looking up. I mean, you know, at the beginning of what I read, until God's little final word with Moses, things look good. I mean, look, Moses is getting old. He's going to die soon, but that's okay. He's appointed Joshua to lead. Joshua's a good guy. He's one of the two um, people who, when they sent spies to check out the promised land, and 10 of the spies came back and said, oh, you know, we're like grasshoppers to those people. You know, they'll, they'll slaughter us. There's no way we can take the land. Joshua and Caleb say, no. God is with us. We can do this. They're men of faith. And because of that, they get to enter into the promised land. So Joshua's a good guy. He's valiant. We've seen earlier how the Lord used him to win military victories. Um, not only that, he's a trusted guy. And God himself commissions him. So you have Moses appointing him, God commissioning him. He's got a good track record, not just of military prowess, but of spiritual faithfulness. So that seems good, right? God has promised to go before them. We read that at the beginning of this chapter. Moses says, I'm not going to go with you, but God is going to go with you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. So God's going to be with them. Joshua's going to be with them. Moses has left them a written record. God has commanded him this sermon that you've preached, the first 30 chapters of Deuteronomy, write it down for them and give it to them. And every seven years, read it again out loud so they can remember. So God has made provision for them to remember the story. He's had it written down, and he's, he's instructed the Levites, the priests, to make sure it gets read every seven years. Okay, And not just to you know, the heads of the families, but even to the children and to the aliens within your gates. That doesn't mean space aliens. That means people who aren't Israelites. So God wants this story told. He wants it told to everybody. Um, it, it just seems like everything Israel had hoped for was about to come true. I mean, they're on the very verge of the promised land. Moses even gets a view of the promised land. In ch it's in chapter 34, but right before he dies, God takes him up on this mountain, Pisgah, and shows him the promised land. And then he dies, and then God buries him. So, you know, it looks great. And Eugene Peterson has a great way of summarizing this. I, I love this. Listen, this is the way he, so capture where you're at. So I read the whole chapter. In some ways, maybe I should have read the first half, preached the first half of the sermon, and then read the second half. You kind of know where it's going, but just try and imagine what it must have been like uh, for the first half of this. Because understand, you know, Moses preaches this sermon. Deuteronomy 1 through, 1 through 30, um, it's, it's a scene. It's on the plains of Moab is the place. He preaches this sermon. Everybody's there. It's an awesome day. Here's the way Peterson says it. The scenario on display that day is totally satisfying. A congregation of free people. They're no longer enslaved. They're free. And here they are worshiping God. They've been thoroughly trained in worship and obedience. Remember, we have Exodus and Leviticus and now chapters 1 through 30 of Deuteronomy. God has told them how he wants to be worshiped and how they should live. They're ready to enter a land of promise. Moses' sermon has just brought it all present and alive before them. 
those splendid sentences and stories reverberating in their ears. Joshua holds the reins of leadership that Moses has just placed in his hands. Moses and Joshua stand before the tent of meeting where God meets with them. The pillar of cloud, God's presence among them, appears in confirmation and blessing. It's a dramatic, satisfying moment. A perfect ending. Except, except there's one more thing. God has a private word with Moses. It couldn't have been pleasant for Moses to hear. And it certainly isn't pleasant for us to read. But if we are going to be prepared for the reality of living as a holy community, we must read it. I I, uh, was thinking about graduating from seminary in 1995, what now, 13 years ago. And I was just thinking about how many of my friends who graduated seminary to enter into a life of ministry, are no longer working in vocational ministry. I think the national average is something like 30% of people that graduate to go into pastoral ministry are no longer working in pastoral ministry five years after they graduate seminary. It's a tough gig. And yet, I, I think, you know, this, this kind of story is the kind of story that we need to make sure we understand. I think the same thing happens to a lot of well-meaning Christians who join churches and get more and more discouraged, especially the more and more they get into the inside and get into leadership positions. And I know some of you's parents are pastors or in leadership positions. And often you know way more than you wish you knew about how churches make decisions, um, how things happen. Um, It's very difficult. One of the things that this passage helps us with is to help us not be so naive about what Christian community and communities of God's people are like, right? Let's look at God's private word with Moses as we dig into this. It's not a pleasant word, as uh, Peterson said in that quote above, and that's an incredible understatement. Listen to how he um, paraphrases the next little, little part. I think he does it well again. He says, okay, Moses, there's one more thing. This is paraphrasing God. Uh, One more thing, Moses. Everything's about to fall to pieces. These people can't wait until you're out of here so they can dive into the orgiastic sex and fertility religion of the Canaanite culture. So write out one last message that can be read after you're dead. Make it a song so the children can learn it well, and we'll be able to pick up the pieces and recover this holy community that you started and that you've served so faithfully and well these 40 years. <laughs> wow. One more thing, Moses. I know you just preached the sermon of your life. And, and, and you just met me in the cloud, and we handed over the reins to Joshua. One more thing. These people are going to prostitute themselves to other gods. And they're going to be utterly destroyed. So write down this song. And teach it to the children so that maybe they can pick up the pieces one day. Wow. Is that how you want to go out? Is that how you want to to end your life here? Knowing that? Wow. I I, I was thinking back to J.I. Packer. You maybe have heard me quote him at times before. J.I. Packer, definitely one of the more influential Christian authors of the 20th century. Really one of the top three or four, I would argue. Um, a man who's devoted his entire life to writing books, really, you know, trying to get Christians to think more 
correctly about who God is and what the Christian life is like. And um, one, of, one of the big issues, you know, has been the doctrine of Scripture. Can we believe the Scripture? Is it reliable? Um, is it trustworthy? The doctrine of inerrancy. He wrote a book early on about the Word of God. The title, it's a British book, so the word fundamentalism means a different thing over there than it does over here. Um, so it's kind of a weird title, Fundamentalism in the Word of God. But it's a very, very great book um, on understanding what do we mean by the doctrine of Scripture? What does the Bible mean by that doctrine? What have Christians understood by it? This is a man who for his whole life has stayed in the Anglican church trying to get the Anglican church to come to a more biblically faithful view. I'm talking about the, the English church and then the Canadian Anglican church. To a more biblically faithful view of the Bible. He, he could have left at many points, but he stayed with that church. Now, he's so old that he can hardly see. He's retired from teaching. He's trying to publish some of his lectures with his, you know, last remaining year or two, who knows how long. But a couple years ago, not that long ago, he came to Nashville, and I had the opportunity to go hear him speak. I'd only heard him speak one other time. And it was unbelievable to hear him now after, you know, devoting, what would you say, 60 years of public ministry in this church that he's loved and he's called to faithfulness for his whole entire ministerial career. And now at the very end of his life, he got up before a bunch of people from his own church and said, I think that the church, our church has become so apostate that it's time for us to finally pull out. It was unbelievable. It wasn't, it wasn't soon after that that he was excommunicated from his own church. Right? And, and I just think about you know, I think about, you know, I, I remember one lecture, one of his areas of academic expertise is the Puritans, the English Puritans. In a lot of ways, he's helped people who will listen to what he has to say um, revise their ideas of the Puritans and come to really appreciate them as spiritual giants. And, um, and yet I remember listening to a seminary course on tape that he did on the Puritans. And at one point he said, you know, the Puritans lost every battle that they fought. Like, we read their books. Some of us have read a lot of their books and benefit from them and think, wow, they're unbelievable, awesome. But they lost every battle they fought. Eventually, the Puritan, you know, movement came to an end, and liberalism and what they would call moderatism, where people just had the shell of Christianity without any life to it, completely dominated their churches until the, the Lord brought a great revival under the Wesleys um, in the early 1700s, which is you know, a good 30 or 40 years of real spiritual darkness. The Puritans, who had such high hopes for um, spreading the true gospel, um, uh, they weren't perfect by any means, but they lost every battle they fought. And I think how many people, it's like, read the list of people in Hebrews 11, the spiritual, you know, heroes, and how many of them ended their lives like this. See, Moses dies knowing that from a human perspective, he's a complete failure. Again, Eugene Peterson, I think, says it so well. He puts it this way. Moses dies, by all human accounting, a failure, and knowing that he's a failure. And knowing that everything he has worked for in leading, training, and preparing, sorry, in leading, training, and praying for this community will unravel as soon as the people enter Canaan. It's a familiar story for readers of Scripture, even though frequently suppressed. What does this mean? 
It means that we have to revise our ideas of the holy community to conform to what is revealed in Scripture. It means that we cannot impose our paradisical, I guess that's a paradisical, I don't know how you say that word, visions of hanging out with lovely, upbeat, and beautiful people when we enter a Christian congregation. It means that God's way of working with us in community has virtually nothing to do with the world's idea of getting things done, of what works and what doesn't. It means that God hasn't changed his modus operandi of choosing, quote, the low and despised of the world to form his community. So the question we have to ask is, what do we expect a church or a Christian community to look and feel like? Or what what does success in the ministry look like? And feel like. I think it's so important for you guys at this age that you begin to rid yourself of romantic notions about the church, or you won't last very long. You really won't. Well, you know, I do RUF hoping that you will that you will develop biblical convictions that will remain with you solidly and long enough that when you finally get to a position of leadership in a church, a position of influence, that you'll be able to make it a better place. But you know what? You're going to have to go through a lot of crap and see a lot of crap to get to that point. You will. And if you have romantic ideas, as soon as things get difficult, you'll be out of there. And you'll want to start some new little group where it's just people who are your friends who are just like you. And people think that that's what Christian community is about. It's not. Christian community is a community you get put into with the lowly and despised people of the world, <laughs> the people that you wouldn't choose to be your friends. That's, that's very challenging, but it's absolutely biblical. I'm not going to read this Marva Dawn quote because I want to get to Jesus and where he fits into all this because um, I feel like I've, I've been kind of a bummer. But the, the fact is sin is real and it thrives in Christian communities. And I don't know why people have these romantic notions because I just have to imagine they haven't read the New Testament very much. Whenever I hear some group talking about wanting to get back to the, the purity of the first century church, I just go, goodness, have you read any of the letters written to churches in the first century? What church are you talking about? Whenever people talk about, you know, we've got to get back to when we were a Christian nation, I think, really, are you serious? When alcoholism was at the all-time high, right? This, oh, unbelievable. You've never read the sermons of the preachers from that era of when you think it was a Christian nation. They sure didn't think it was a Christian nation, um, at least one that lived like, like Christians. Um, that's a whole topic for another day. I won't go off on that anymore. But, but anytime we think that there's some golden age, we're just hopelessly naive. And, and the same thing can happen in people that read church history and you know, finding a golden church age that we think you know, would be great if only we could get, get back there. We don't need to be naive. We need to be realistic. Um, but, but here's the other thing I want to say about this story tonight. I said this is a story that teaches us, um, you know, really kind of opens us up or helps us wake up to reality. Uh, it's, also a story, it's also a story that shows us that we need something more. We see, need something more than Moses. See, Moses, even as great as he was and as powerful as the Lord used him, he wasn't enough. Now, that is actually the message, particularly of the Old Testament, everywhere. Even though so many children's story Bibles and so many churches preach Bible characters like they're these people we should emulate 
and examples to follow or not follow. That's not the point of the Bible characters. Moses is not the person we're to pattern ourselves after. He's never presented that way. He's presented as a man who, though he's a great man and God uses him powerfully, he's a flawed man who ultimately fails to deliver his people into the true rest that they were made for. And he dies knowing that. So, you know, we need to understand that the story itself is preaching this message at us that Moses isn't enough. And all the Old Testament characters do that, even the best of them. See, Moses, remember, he didn't get to enter the promised land because he struck the rock twice. We need, we need somebody even better than Moses. We need a perfect deliverer to enter into the true land of rest. And we have one. Jesus, Jesus is the real deliverer whose life ended in what looked like a complete failure. Jesus, Jesus is the one who is the true deliverer whose life ended in what looked like a complete failure. See, if you'd been there on that first Good Friday, looking at Jesus hanging on the cross, you would have concluded that his mission was an utter and complete failure. You would have concluded, like everybody else standing around watching, that God had forsaken him, that God had abandoned him. You would have, you would have looked up at him and you would have seen a man cursed by God. After all, it says in the Old Testament law, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And in Jesus' day, they applied that to crucifixion. You would have looked around and you would have seen one disciple, John, and a few women. They don't count in the first century. Nobody cares much about women or what they think. So he's been abandoned by everybody that matters except one. You would have concluded that God was not there and that God was doing nothing. And you would have been completely wrong. You would have been completely wrong. What the cross teaches us is that when it looks like God is doing nothing, he's usually doing his greatest work. Martin Luther called this the theology of the cross. And he says it's absolutely vital for us to understand if we would make sense of what Jesus is doing on a cross. God is doing his greatest work. Jesus is doing his greatest work. Bringing redemption to mankind when it looks like nothing is happening. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? But what's going on is the most significant event in the history of the universe. Right? It, it's vital for us to understand Jesus and what he's done. But it's also vital for us to understand if we would make sense of the Christian life. Because so much of the Christian life is like that as well. That when it feels like Jesus is not doing anything, he's often doing his most powerful work. I, I don't know of any mature Christian who wouldn't tell you that. Who wouldn't say that the times when I felt that I've grown the most have been the times when I felt that God was absent. And I had to learn to cling to him in a new kind of depth. 
beyond just sort of superficial feelings, but he brought me to a depth of trust that was way deeper than anything I'd ever known. It's it's central to understanding the Christian life. So what I'm saying is you can't be naive about Christian community. You also can't be naive about your own experience with Christ and what it means to walk with him. And if you're thinking about Christianity, I want you to know this is what it's about. It's, you know, when people say, you know, Christianity is just a crutch, I, I know that they've, they've never tried the Christian life. It's more than a crutch. It's a life support system. But it also, in, in many ways, plunges you into darker places than you've ever been before. Because, because you can go to places that you've never had the courage to go before because you know that not only will God never leave you or forsake you, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you because God forsook him at the cross. What are the, what are the implications for this as well, for thinking about ministry? Because I know some of you guys think about that. I think all of us, if you're a Christian, you should think about in what way does God want me to be involved in his mission? Christianity isn't just for us to feel better about ourselves. And I think that this, what this passage is teaching us and this theology of the cross, what, what you know, Jesus is teaching us, is that ministry often feels like death. I had a mentor of mine once tell me that, you know, Christian, that faith feels like death, that the initial feel of sin is always it feels good, and then afterwards it feels like death, right? But living by faith feels like death first. Now, I don't know very many Christians that like that. I don't know very many ministries that operate on that basis, the idea that when it looks like nothing is happening, when it looks like everything's falling apart, maybe God is doing his most important work. All I'm saying is this passage turns upside down our ideas of what success looks like. It changes it instead of saying that we just, you know, measure it in worldly terms, we have to look more in terms of faithfulness. And again, Jesus' ultimate expression of faithfulness is when he hung on a cross to the very end. And I don't know what God will ask of you if you follow him. I can only promise you that he will never leave you or forsake you. But I don't think he would have to repeat that promise over and over and over again like he does in this passage if it wasn't going to feel like that sometimes. And the real, the real question is, can God's word trump what you feel? I don't think you can live very long as a Christian unless you believe that. Unless you can say... I'm going to take this picture as the paradigm, as the pattern for what Christian ministry looks like and feels like, rather than my romantic notions and what I wish it would feel like and look like. So if you think, if you think you're called into ministry, pray, be sobered, but also be encouraged that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you and you'll come to know him more deeply than you ever thought was possible, most typically in those times when he's all you have. All right? Now, next week, we're going to talk about the song because I think it's important to look at what is the song that God gives Moses to teach the children so that when everything falls apart, the children can remember who God was. That's what we're going to do next week. Um, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are a rock. 
when everything else is shifting underneath us, even our own, um, our own feelings. Lord, we pray that you would sober us, but also encourage us. That if Jesus did not abandon us and abandon the cross, that he, of course, will never leave us or forsake us now. Because we may be frustrated to deal with. We may try his patience. We may try your patience. But Lord, it's nothing compared to what he's already went through for us. So we pray, Lord, that we would go out of here sobered and deeply, richly encouraged. That we do have the real deliverer. Who, though his life looked like it ended in failure, in actuality, brought the greatest triumph ever conceived. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.